The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the skies proclaim His handiwork. This is Good Heavens, a podcast exploring the wonders of God's heavenly creation. Jupiter, Venus, Mars, and Saturn are visible in the pre-dawn hours this month. Even if you live in a larger urban area, and if you can get a good view of the southeastern horizon just before sunrise, you'll be able to see the jeweled planetary glory arcing along the ecliptic. The ecliptic is the path in the sky along which the sun, moon, and planets travel, with the moon varying a few degrees above and below the ecliptic, depending on the time of month. The name planet comes from the Greek word planetai, meaning wandering star. These wandering stars travel around the sun on the same horizontal plane, so we here on Earth are on one of the inside lanes along with Mercury, Venus, and Mars, while the gas giant planets Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune are on the outside lanes. And over a period of time, we can see the motion of these planets in the night and pre-dawn skies. Man has been observing, calculating, and predicting the positions of these celestial wanderers ever since the dawn of time. Some of the earliest known forms of writing, going back to 3300 BC into ancient Mesopotamia, include what archaeologists believe are astronomical references to cycles of the sun, moon, stars, and constellations. Now, a constellation is simply a region of the sky with particular boundaries, like a celestial county of sorts. There are 88 of these celestial counties, or divisions, with each having their own county seat, a main grouping of the brightest stars within that region, which are also referred to as constellations. In addition to the sun, moon, and planets, there are 12 of these constellations that also travel along the ecliptic. The Greeks called these constellations Zodiacos Kylos, notes astronomer Terence Dickinson in his handy stargazing guide Nightwatch. Dickinson points out, though, that there are only, quote, seven and a half animal signs among the 12 constellations, Aries the Ram, Taurus the Bull, Cancer the Crab, Leo the Lion, Scorpius the Scorpion, Capricornus the Goat, and Pisces the Fish, end quote. Nicholson also notes that the zodiac features four and a half human figures as well, Virgo the Virgin, Aquarius, the water bearer, Castor and Pollux of Gemini, the twins, and the half-man, half-horse, Sagittarius, the archer. And rounding out the twelve is Libra, the scales, which is neither animal nor human, but a pair of scales or a balance. Nicholson observes this quote to be a later revision intended to distinguish this region of the sky from its former designation, the claws of the scorpion, end quote. So Jupiter, Venus, Mars, and Saturn will be visible through April, throughout May, and all the way into June. So you have plenty of time to see the show. Right now, here in the end of April, the planets are evenly spaced. And as the end of May approaches, you'll see Mars and Jupiter coming closer and closer together, 
with Venus low in the southeastern horizon and Saturn to the right of Mars and Jupiter. And complementing this glorious planetary dance will be the brightest star in the constellation of Scorpius, Antares. Its name means like Mars because of its brilliant vermilion color, easily observable with the naked eye. The Bible encourages us to lift up our eyes on high and see who has created these stars. God calls them all by name, a name known only to him. By the greatness of his might and power, he directs their courses with fixed regularity, reminding us of his faithfulness to us. C.S. Lewis penned an enigmatically detailed poem about the planets, giving several curious descriptions of each of the planets' influence as they were known in the medieval era. For more about Lewis and his love of medieval planetary lore, I highly recommend Dr. Michael Ward's book, Planet Narnia. I did my master's thesis with Dr. Ward about his book and Lewis's cosmological imagination. So here's an excerpt from Lewis's poem about Jupiter. It was this section of the poem from which Dr. Ward had an epiphany about the Chronicles of Narnia. And as I read this, see if you notice anything related to the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Quote, soft breathes the air, mild and meadowy, as we mount further, where rippled radiance rolls about us, moved with music, measureless, the waves, joy, and jubilee. It's Jove's orbit, filled and festal, faster turning with arc ampler from the isles of tin tyrian traders in trouble steering came with his cargoes the cornish treasure that his ray ripens of wrath ended and woes mended of winter past and guilt forgiven and good fortune jove is master of jocund revel laughter of ladies the lion-hearted the myriad-minded men like the gods Helps and heroes, helms of nations, just and gentle are Jove's children. Work his wonders, on his wide forehead, calm and kingly. No care darkens, no wrath wrinkles, but righteous power and leisure and largesse. Their loose splendors have wrapped around him a rich mantle of ease and empire." End quote. There is much we could unpack in Lewis's lengthy poem, but in this short episode we cannot do it all justice, unfortunately. Most everyone who has read the Chronicles of Narnia are familiar with its Christian themes. But Dr. Ward was the first to put forth the suggestion that Lewis's seven books are also about medieval planetary lore. Narnia, Ward surmised, was Lewis's extended commentary about one of his favorite psalms, Psalm 19. Quote, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the expanse shows forth his handiwork. Day unto day pours forth speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. End quote. 
In a simple summary, Dr. Ward believed, as do I after having probed the questions myself during my studies, that Lewis was combining several things into his imaginative writings about Narnia. His love of Psalm 19, his love of literature, especially the late medieval period, for he was a literary scholar, and his delight of the heavens. Lewis even had a small telescope on his balcony at his home, the Kilns. Lewis, however, was not advocating for astrology, to be clear. What he did, though, was to take the medieval characteristics of the planets and imaginatively recast them in fairy tale form in Narnia as hints, clues, and tacit descriptions about Jesus. The planets in Narnia and all their medieval associations served as the atmosphere of Narnia, what Lewis would call the kappa element in a story, a theme kind of hiding in plain sight, similar in the way that the heavens are silently declaring the glory of God to us. Lewis's planetary atmosphere was not direct, but subtle and woven throughout each story, cleverly crafted to get readers past stereotypical religious ideas about Jesus, those, quote, stained glass and Sunday school associations, end quote, as Lewis put it. It remains a wonder that the heavens declare God's glory to us. They are a declaration we do not hear with our ears, but understand with all of our heart, mind, and soul. For millennia, the heavens have unceasingly influenced countless sailors, soldiers, farmers, authors, poets, writers, scientists, theologians, philosophers, musicians, and artists. And myself, too. It is a testament to God's wondrous design of the cosmos that the heavens not only continue to be so useful to us, but that they are also so very beautiful. We can describe the heavens not only with poetic and philosophical and theological language, but also with the exacting prose of scientific and mathematical language. Everything from Kepler's planetary laws to Einstein's revolutionary equation about space and time, the heavens are indeed pouring forth speech and revealing knowledge to us day after day and night after night. The heavens do indeed declare the glory of God in every language to everyone. But modern science, sadly, has depersonalized the cosmos, reducing the heavens to nothing much more than facts and figures. As essayist and polymath Samuel Johnson once quipped to an astronomer friend, quote, You teach your daughters the diameters of planets and wonder when you are done that they do not delight in your company, end quote. Astronomer J. Ryan laments, quote, Undoubtedly, most of us have had a similar experience in learning astronomy, since this is the manner in which the subject is typically mishandled in our generation, end quote. But the heavens are much more than just numbers, facts, and figures. The lights in the sky above us are far more than mere gas and dust. The heavens are divinely crafted poetic speech, 
God has revealed himself to all of us through what he has made. Every planet, every star, every galaxy. This revelation is both at once audibly silent, yet known throughout the whole earth. It is interesting that the Hebrew of Psalm 19, for example, can be translated as the heaven's declaration of God's glory as, quote, there is no language where their voice is not heard. That is, there is no one who has not heard of the heavens and by implication the glory of God. But you can also translate that verse as, quote, there is no speech, their voice is not heard, meaning the heaven's declaration of divine glory is silent, that there are no audible words uttered. All celestial objects are divinely handcrafted diadems created for signs and for seasons and for days and years to unceasingly declare God's glory. There is layered meaning among the heavenly host, all of it pointing to our Creator, who, in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, loved us and gave Himself for us. Consider for a moment the sacrificial ritual of the Pawnee Plains Native Americans who inhabited the grasslands of northeastern Kansas and the southeastern corner of Nebraska. In his book, The Living Sky, The Cosmos of the American Indian, author Ray Williamson sketches the history of the Great Morning Star ritual, which involved sacrificing a captured female from a neighboring tribe to the Great Morning Star. The last known human sacrifice performed by the Pawnee, Williamson notes, was on April 22nd of 1838. It involved a teenage Sioux girl named Hoxtie. Historians and anthropologists who have studied the history of the Pawnee culture suggest the Great Morning Star to be the planet Mars. Williamson tells how the young maiden was tied to a scaffold and at the appearance of the Great Morning Star would be shot through the heart by an arrow her soul taken up by the celestial god and her blood ceremoniously spread to ensure the longevity of the animals, crops, and tribe itself. I entered the date of April 22, 1838 on my Stellarium software, and assuming the calculations of the software engineers and astronomers who developed the program to be correct, Mars did in fact rise just before sunrise on that day. But it is a tragic misinterpretation of the heavens. And how we interpret the universe does indeed have a profound impact on how we conduct our lives here on Earth. In our modern era, we are told the heavens were not created, but formed somehow by themselves, quite unintentionally. The host of stars, planets, and galaxies, and even our Earth, are meaningless accidents. By implication, so are we. Over and over again, astronomers and popularizers of secular science today routinely sacrifice our intuitive meaning and purpose by telling us that in the cosmic scheme of things, human beings are inconsequential and unimportant. In carefully studying the heavens, the Pawnee intuitively understood that there existed a divine reality behind the universe and discerned the necessity of blood sacrifice was intimately connected not only to the heavens, but to their gods and to themselves. There are parallels to scripture. 
In the Bible, we find that Jesus identifies himself as the bright and morning star in Revelation 22:16. But Jesus does not command that we appease God by sacrificing ourselves or others. Rather, he is the sacrifice for sin for the whole world. It is by his blood alone that we are saved, not by the blood of bulls or goats or any other human being. The Old Testament sacrifices were foreshadowing God sending his own son to be sacrificed upon the scaffold atop Calvary, the cross. Jesus took God's wrath, the penalty for our sin, upon himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever so should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The Pawnee had intuitively understood, simply by carefully studying the stars, their own need of divine mercy that could only be attained through blood sacrifice, though tragically their ideas as to how to achieve that were terribly mistaken. I believe this serves as but one example of how God has revealed himself to us through what he has made. Every tribe, tongue, and nation know something of God's glory. But the stars are not sufficient unto themselves to tell us the specific details of how to be right with God or how to conduct our lives. They are sufficient revelation to us of God's existence and of his divine attributes, but they cannot by themselves direct us to understand what Jesus has done for us. So some concluding thoughts about this spring's wondrous planetary alignment of Jupiter, Venus, Mars, and Saturn. From my master's thesis with Dr. Ward, and through an extensive reading of Lewis's works, I came to learn that the medievals associated joy with Jupiter, sorrow with Saturn, love with Venus, and conflict and war with Mars. Lewis took a creative step further and made these connections with Christ who scripture identifies as a man of sorrows, who, as both God and man, came to bring a sword, but also to bring his love and to give us joy everlasting, beyond anything we can ask or imagine for ourselves. In this sense, for me personally, the planets remind me of these aspects of Jesus, his faithfulness, his sorrows, his wrath, his joy, and his love. This is not astrology. This is not predicting the future. This isn't discerning world events or trying to figure out when Jesus will return. No. It is simply using what I know about Jesus as a struggling believer, often in need of constant reminders about who God is and who I am, and applying that knowledge symbolically to the heavens. In short, I'm simply saying that I am merely seeing the planets as symbols, personal reminders to me of a few of God's invisible attributes. Jupiter serves to remind me of Jesus' joy. Venus serves to remind me that God is love, that Jesus is the manifestation of God's love, that he is the bright and morning star. Saturn reminds me of Jesus as a man of sorrows, whose brow was once ringed with a crown of thorns. And Mars reminds me of God's wrath, poured out on his son, his blood shed for my sin and yours. So if you're up before sunrise this month and next, lift up your eyes on high and have a look at a few of the diadems of our solar system and be reminded of the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. 
For Good Heavens, I'm Daniel Ray.